Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Well, I think we're gonna we talked last time about immigrant health and refugee health. Perfect, a very a very very awesome topic and stuff. And you know what? It's 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 very 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 important. And I think last time I mentioned too about talking a little bit about poverty as well. You know what I mean? Yep. And stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm really passionate about poverty, right? I want to be passionate about that. Kind of sounds a little, but I've but but I think in med school and residency we don't get enough of this, right? And and it's our tendency to kind of say, okay, you know what? Person has X. I got to learn about you know ACS, and I got to learn about managing intrusive bleed, and I have to learn about managing a subarachnoid. But you know what? Poverty is super super important, right? And there's tons of health outcomes that it affects, right? So I'm glad we're gonna have the opportunity to talk about it and uh, and to give it the attention that it deserves and stuff so that in every clinical encounter people are asking themselves could there be a poverty related risk factor right um 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 um, uh, and and to screen you know really really take that time to screen and stuff right and there's some great resources yeah especially if you're working in a clinic in in one of those settings where you know you're going to have those demographics either inner city or or rural or immigrant health or you know excellent excellent so dr bouchard how are we starting off? I'm starting off here with the world's sexiest man, Dr. Yeah. Brady <laughs> Nice. Well, I thought we'd tackle, so the key features for the immigrant topics, specifically talking about the exam, are pretty brief. So we can cover yeah. that fairly easily. Um, and then maybe go on to your your the love of your life, um, social determinants of health and poverty and- Perfect. You know, all that stuff. I thought this was really topical and, and worth going into- um, especially just because of, you know, the Syrian crisis and everything that's been going on with the, the wave of immigration that's coming into Canada and coming into, um, as far as I know, into cities that don't usually accept immigrants. So usually they end up in, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, um, those kind of sites. But there's been more, more than a few kind of regional or smaller towns that are getting their first um, newly arrived refugees or, or immigrants from completely different cultures and not really knowing what to do with it. I know on the first five years in practice Facebook group, there's been a few questions from docs being like, what do Perfect. I do? I've never dealt with exactly. before. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. So very, very, um, very, very topical for now. And a very, very important um, um, ish, you know, very, very important topic. I want to highlight something amazing CMAJ article on, on, um, you know, caring for newly arrived immigrants, caring for refugees and stuff. Amazing article. Well, my man, Kevin Potty from Ottawa, coolest, one of the coolest people on the planet, right? A nice little article back in 2011. I'm sure you've heard of it, Dr. Bouchard. Yeah. Well, he updated it in 2016. Did you know that? There you go. He updated it in 2016. Perfect. He did. Caring for the newly arrived Syrian refugee family. There you go. Exactly. And stuff. And basically what he did was he, he looked at some of the, the, the specific cultural contexts um, 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 with specific groups, you know what I mean? And adapted right. his previous guidelines to that. But it really does provide a really, really good framework. You know what I mean? And stuff. The actual, um, the original article was like 115 pages, the, 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 the full thing. They have a very, very good summary article that's very, very, um, very, very good. So maybe we can link it to the show notes so that we everybody can benefit from, from, from the wealth of knowledge that I'm man dr kevin potty who is from ottawa who yep. works in ottawa who's the coolest person on the planet only second to dr brady bouchard <laughs> nice mike yeah and i mean so his article is excellent and i would recommend everybody to read it so i mentioned the title before and i'll put it in the show notes 
Um, right at the end of his article, um, he mentions probably the single greatest resource I found for immigrant and refugee health. Um, you know, even looking at other countries, I think Canada's got one of the better resources and it's done by the CCIRH, the Canadian Collaboration for Immigrant and Refugee Health. Um, and it's specifically their, their preventative care checklist. And they go through um, regions of the world and what you're looking, you know, what kind of typical problems that would present. Um, yeah. which I think is a good way to break it up kind of regionally. Um, and then they go through a first, second, third, and and later visits um, into your primary care practice with kind of everything you should cover. Um, and also, importantly, in my mind, stuff you shouldn't cover. So yeah. stuff that you exactly. might think might be a big issue that, that won't be. Exactly, exactly. No, And I like the fact, too, that they break it down exactly as you say by region. Right. Like yeah. to give to give sort of the to give sort of the regional nuances. Right. Um, um, it's kind of giving the sense of, of the types of sort of healthcare crises, types of sociopolitical crises that may be going on in different places and how they may shape um, um, patient presentations. You know, so yeah, I think absolutely. that is fantastic that they break it down by region and stuff. And it really provides a good sort of one stop shopping for um, for uh, for talking about this very, very important issue and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think another thing, along with the checklist, probably the most important other thing to have in your head before you even see the family that's booked in for their first visit um, is consideration for interpreters or arranging interpreters, because especially Perfect. in the regional areas, um, you're likely not going to have someone on site with whatever language you're dealing with. Perfect. Perfect. That's a very, very good point and stuff. And most places have access to, um, you know, telephone services or telephone, uh, uh, translation, uh, translation, uh, services. And I think one of the important things around too is, is just being aware of community resources in general, right? Because yeah, oftentimes, you, you know, as the sort of family doctor, you might be the, you know, you want to know what resources are available in your community. Does that make sense? It kind of, um, um, what resources are available in your community and stuff, because oftentimes it may involve recommending, you know, if you notice a specific healthcare concern or you notice specific issues about making the necessary recommendations, right. Or being able to tie people, um, 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 into necessary resources or so. And that's why I think it's so important, especially when you work rurally is to make sure you're tied with your local organizations, right? Like make sure that people know who you are, make, sure that that you know what those organizations are doing that you're able to meet with some of their staff that you're going to be able to to, to really form those relationships right and you can really have a uh, like a, a knowledge base of what they can offer to patients right and that's sort of like this whole idea about you know social accountability you know what i mean and stuff that we throw out there you know that's part of it as well right what resources are available in my community and how can i meet a community need does that make yeah. sense and, and, and I think those are, I think those are so vitally important, uh, vitally important points. So really take that time and, 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 and I can't emphasize this annoying enough to know what your community resources are, right? And what community resources that your community might need, right? That you might have the skills to be able to do, right? So, so, you know, I think that's so, so important to kind of do that survey and to do that appraisal. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point, Mike. And, um, in addition to the local context, uh, um, you know, another context to, to have in mind before you go into these consults, too, is is kind of the cultural context. And I think especially not to slight my older colleagues, but especially new in practice physicians, um, my generation physicians, I think we do a good job of um, essentially just withholding judgment around pretty much everything um, because every different cultures handle things differently. You know, personally, I have issues with chauvinistic societies where you know the male is the really the only one allowed to speak 
in a consult, but also as a physician, I'm allowed to completely put that in the back of my mind and, and you know, not let that ruin the consult and, and get the information that you need because, you know, that's the way they're, they're used to working. Yeah, exactly. And then being, you know, conscious of, you know, stuff we get even, even within the Canadian context often is, you know, male physicians with male patients, um, female physicians with female patients, commonly that's a, a request um, as well for, for examinations, especially intimate examinations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? And it's, it's really this idea, and, and I encourage everybody to do some reading about this, about cultural safety, right? And that's really the next sort of thing is that, you know, it's not to say that cultural sensitivity is bad or, or cultural awareness, but cultural safety is really where you want to be practicing. You kind of want to look at, look at yourself every single day and saying, am I practicing culturally safe care? Does that make sense? And it, and, and, and I think that's an important point. And, um, I, I think that's an important point. Amazing resources out of Toronto and stuff. You can put them up in the show notes afterwards that kind of talks about cultural safety. This is something I've been really into for the last, you know, two, three years and stuff. I never learned about cultural safety in residency or so. And it's really kind of been sort of very recently that I've been spending a lot of time with it and really asking myself, how can I be really a truly culturally safe um, um, physician, you know, there's a lot of introspection that's involved in cultural safety as well, right? Um, uh, um, it goes beyond just sense of cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness and looks at yourself, look at your own notions, your own perceptions, your own views, you know what I mean? Really taking a look at yourself in the mirror and asking yourself, well, what do I think about issue X, right? And, and to ensuring that you're providing a practice that is truly culturally safe, right? Where people feel safe in your practice, right? Um, um, yeah. people feel 100% safe in your practice so i think that's so so important and and yeah it's 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 really really important so i encourage everybody to do some reading about that and stuff amazing i'll give you the um we'll put the the links in the show notes about cultural safety i love it that we're on exactly the same wavelength i've actually already in the half finished study notes the very first subtitle i have is culturally safe practice in healthcare exactly and that all came out of and and you made the good you made the contrast which is which is totally uh relevant and valid in our context now is we moved on from a cultural sensitivity to cultural safety um and the next step in that is um not only being sensitive to you know individual cultures but also understanding what your impact is upon them and any historical impact as well cultural safety really came out of of aboriginal people's um, studying in Canada and, and New Zealand, the Maori especially, um, but around not just what their culture is and what healthcare is appropriately there, but also what post-contact history of that people has done. Perfect. Exactly, exactly. And systemic effects of things like systemic racism, um, 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 effects of, of colonialism, those types of things, right? So you're almost taking a very analytical approach, right? And, uh, um, a, a very analytical approach to, to, uh, to the, to the whole thing. So I, I think it's, yeah. I think that those are very, very good points. And that's what we want to strive to as clinicians, um, to really practice culturally safe care and move beyond just culturally sensitive or cultural awareness. But Dr. Brady Bouchard already knew, already knew that from the basement of Victoria. Yeah. You're getting all philosophical on me. You're like Plato. Does that make exactly. sense? Well, exactly. I don't want to alienate the people that are listening to this because they're going to quickly get bored talking about cultural sensitivity and safety, to be honest, because I get bored about it sometimes. Um, but honestly, I, I think 90% of what you need to do um, is just listen to people and listen to the stories they tell you because you'll get that history from people. I mean, especially in First Nation populations, 
Um, if you don't need to read or go out in search of anything to do with residential schools, and if you see enough patients in that context, you'll learn all about it and the the issues that have come out of that. And you know that's just one topic, but there's plenty of other topics um, that you'll get even if you just take the extra two minutes at the end of a consult and be like, you know, hey, tell me something, like, tell me something I don't know about your life or your family or your exactly or whatever. And you know, it's amazing, this idea of storytelling, right? Like, yeah. I always say that, like, we're so focused in medicine on getting histories, but what we should be focused on as well, too, is hearing people's stories as well, right? Because in each person, there's a story. You know what I mean? In each yeah. person, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a story and stuff. And you want to take that time to listen and really get what that person's story is. Cause that's sometimes where the gold is. So you can understand experience. You can understand, um, um, you can, I, I wouldn't even say that you will completely understand it, but you'll start on that journey of understanding, right? Um, um, I think that's so important, right? Is get people's stories. And, and I'm not saying your medical history is unimportant. It's very important. But you also want to make sure that you get your patient's stories stories as well, too. That's vitally important as well. And I find in medicine, we don't do enough of that, right? Like it's yeah. medicine is like business, right? You came in here today with your chest pain. I'm going to work through the differential. Like that's what we do as doctors, right? It's all business, right? It's it's we don't have time for that stuff. No, but you know what? Do it. It's important, right? It is very, very important to get not only your patient's history, but their patient's story. You'll be a better doctor. You'll connect to your patients better. And you know what? You'll be able to help some, you know, their medical issues probably that much better if you understand their story, right? So make sure in every clinical encounter that you're getting a little bit of this portion of your patient's story or so. Beautifully put, Mike. Oh, I got a compliment from the world's sexiest man. I feel so invigorated. Dude, I, I make such a good effort to try and cut out all of your instances of sexy in this podcast. It makes it, makes it really fun to edit. Why? Why are you cutting out the sexy? That is, I want the sexy in there. In fact, now, now in order so you don't edit it out, I'm just going to yeah. say random sexy. Sexy. Nice. Sexy. Nice. Okay, let's talk about hepatitis B sexy. Uh, yeah exactly lovely man um what else can we talk about uh just hitting the topics before we turn on to your awesome poverty and social determinants um so first thing uh first visit with a new immigrant or new refugee family it's important to know without being super in-depth that every single one of them either permanent residents or refugees um, as part of their visa application and processing, and I went through this when I went to Australia, and my wife did the same thing when she came here, um, is you go through an immigration medical examination, which is a, a huge amount of money uh, for not a lot of time with a doc, but in general, you get a, you get a chest x-ray to screen for TB, um, you get exactly. syphilis screening, you get a urine analysis, and you get an HIV test. And Perfect. the two big things, probably the other side of this to know for the immigration medical that they care about, Two reasons to exclude you from coming to Canada are if you have medical conditions that they reasonably think will be a burden on the healthcare system, so you're going to cost mm -hmm. us too much money, or right. that you have medical conditions that are a public safety risk. So that's really an exactly. infectious disease. Exactly, um, exactly. So, so those are the two things that they're trying to exclude people from coming to Canada for or treat before ad admitting into Canada. Perfect, perfect. Those are all very, very good points, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so before you even see them in your in your first office visit, that will have been done. So you don't need to repeat um, those points, um, and that'll be for everybody um, 
like I said, who's a permanent resident or through the re any refugee system or any, any refugee process. Um, and then on the first visit, the easy stuff is the same preventative care stuff that we do at any um, age-appropriate visit. Exactly. And children making sure their school-age vaccinations are up to date. Um, the thing with um, being, again, coming back to cultural context and, and the regions they come from, despite Syria being bombed to the bomb to smithereens um, and hence the huge number of refugees prior to the war um, their healthcare system was quite excellent so most of them have are fully vaccinated and have good uh, records of, of such um, so that's exactly. not really an issue with that particular group um, visual acuity you want to screen for um, depending on the region uh, a lot of people don't get screened in childhood and obviously it'll cause mm -hmm. issues for um, for going to school uh, dental they should see a dentist once at least um, exactly. You want to have ongoing screening for child neglect or intimate partner violence, mm -hmm. iron deficiency, diabetes, the infectious diseases, hepatitis B, varicella, and HPV. Yep. Uh, you want to uh, do serology for, then vaccinate. Um, yeah, and I think that covers the kind of major stuff. Exactly. There. HIV, of course, TB and stuff. There's certain guidelines and stuff like that, too, where yeah, TB so in certain age groups and in certain risk populations or certain uh, from certain places. Yeah, especially if they're symptomatic, you want to cover that again. Perfect. The, the, the thing is with TB and HIV, those are both done at the immigration medical. So it, as long as you don't have signs or symptoms that you're particularly worried about, um, they should exactly. have been screened already. Before exactly. You, before you see them. Yeah. Perfect. 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 Remember your delayed vaccination, please, folks. Like when we talk about vaccinations and stuff, delayed vaccination. So that can often come up as well for yeah, our kids. Sure. Yep, Absolutely. Perfect. So you want to make sure that you're keeping in mind too. You know, one of the things I found very, very um, useful was actually when they looked about mental health, right? And it's kind of interesting when they when they looked at like mental health. We know that there there can be you know if people are displaced, um, uh, um, people are displaced, there can be higher rates of depression, you know. But it's interesting about PTSD and if you're a well functioning person, right? So the person's not showing any clinical overt signs. Do you want to push the PTSD? You know what I mean and stuff. You probably don't, right? You want to keep in mind of it as a diagnosis. You know what I mean and stuff. But if someone is functioning well, if they don't show any other signs of PTSD, you 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 you. It's not like you're going to send for pro prophylactic counseling to try to dig something up you know what i mean and stuff so it's it's very very interesting in that it's very very interesting in that sort of uh in that sort of respect right because we know that um um potentially there's um um, um, you know, if you have some sort of access to some sort of integrated treatment program, then screening for depression is a good idea. And you can use your PHQ or whatever you'd like to use, you know what I mean? And stuff, some, some, but it's kind of different for PTSD, right? Um, yeah, um, it's kind of a bit different for PTSD, right? Of course, if you're showing signs and symptoms of PTSD, that's one thing, right? Um, 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 if you're showing signs and symptoms of PTSD, but as far as general screening for people who have no signs and symptoms, as far as a net benefit, that's part is a bit more questionable yeah and i think that um that's excellent that's in the checklist as well the other point to mention in there on the kind of the flip side of that is if if you do have uh especially refugees um from war-torn areas that end up with a diagnosis of depression or are suffering from depression there could be underlying ptsd that is making exactly. that worse that needs exactly. to be treated exactly. concurrently as well 
Exactly, exactly. So that's a very good point that you brought up and stuff. Yeah, so you want to make sure that that people, you know, and those people are going to have potentially depressive symptoms, right? So they're going to be symptomatic, right? What I was talking about before is more like the asymptomatic person, right? Who's not that the the benefits of screening for that, um, um, the benefits for screening for that isn't necessarily as strong, right? You do want to have it on your spider sense, your spider sense starts tingling, especially if you're noticing that this person is showing signs and symptoms of depression, or they're showing signs and symptoms of other mental Ill- illness, um, um, PTSD can definitely exacerbate that, right? Oh, absolutely. Perfect. Beautiful, Mike. Um, Perfect. And I think we've covered most of the key features here. I guess um, the other point in here is they, you know, mentioned like you have to consider kind of the tropical disease or or the regional disease as well, so malaria or parasitic disease and and TB, but those are those screening for those is based on or screening or testing is based on symptoms, signs right. of symptoms. So um, it would be the same thing as if you had a new traveler to those regions. Um, and then the other thing is is traditional or herbal medicines, the same thing that um, our First Nations populations uh, sometimes partake in, um, not to you know to scold them for it or warn them off of it, but just to understand what they're taking, um, just in case mm-hmm. it does have any uh, pharmacological. Um, benefit or or impact or, or anything perfect perfect exactly and remember things i think you'd mentioned this before things like oral health remember women's health as well too right if it, if any contraceptive advice or anything like that oh that's um, the one i missed yeah the big one oh dr bouchard ah uh, geez contraception that? i know oh. That that's the one that's not. I mean, that's not a, a normal intervention at any particular age. So if you're not thinking about it with your with your new immigrants, you're not gonna not gonna ask about it. And that's one on their checklist that with grade A evidence that you should ask for. Excellent. You, so contraceptive advice. And remember, all the screening, as you perfectly said, Doctor Bouchard, this world's sexiest man. Um, Make sure that you do the normal sort of age appropriate screening, right? So cervical cytology, um, um, colon cancer screening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The same sort of age appropriate screening that you would normally do and stuff. So keep yeah. that in mind, right? So, um, so again, just summarize big topic. First things first, make sure you're practicing, make sure you're a culturally safe physician, practice the tenets of cultural safety. It's more than just cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness. Um, make sure that you link up with community organizations, you know what organizations can offer what particular services in your community. Make sure that you um, um, have an idea about what these services are and what services and how they can best help your patients. Um, remember when we think about immigrant and refugee health, um, you're going to do all the normal stuff that you would normally do as part of your periodic health examination or whatever the new lingo that you want to do. Um, you, you and stuff as far as sort of screening and prevention. So make sure you do all that stuff, right? In addition, there's specific recommendations, for example, hepatitis, Hepatitis, uh, um, um, hepatitis, TB, HIV, etc. Um, remember, in terms of mental illness, um, we have some evidence. If you have a structured, uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, an, a treatment program that's available, that's integrated, and stuff, some evidence for potentially screening for depression, for PTSD. Of course, you're going to consider that if there's other symptoms. Does that make sense? Um, consider Absolutely. that if there's uh, if there's um, other uh, other symptoms. Remember, it's women's health. Um, very, very important as well, right? Um, but yeah, like it's 
it's, 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 uh, it's for me, I look at it in terms of making sure I'm doing the things I would do for everybody. You know what I mean? Plus yeah. the additional things that I'm going to do and I'm going to recognize. And that's where that cultural safety comes in is about what is that person's story, right? Like where is that person's from? What is that, their experience, right? Cause you have to understand like some people are coming from countries where they don't really have a very positive relationship with the healthcare system, right? You could yeah, have gone absolutely. to your doctor and that doctor could have ratted you out to anybody, right? You have to understand that too. And that may, that may cloud sometimes. Um, 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 you know, we want to make sure that that doesn't cloud our judgment or we don't jump to conclusions or so. We want to make sure that we get people's stories and that we practice truly culturally safe medicine. The sexy Dr. Brady Bouchard, the man who can levitate small objects with his own sense of self-satisfaction, <laughs> the engineer, the integrator, something like that. All right, we're going to move on to poverty. I want to spend some time and talk about this. Now, right. you know what? This is something that we do not, they do not spend a lot of time in medical school about. And it's a vitally, vitally important to topic, right? Yep. Um, it's something that is super common, Dr. Bouchard. Super, super common. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the social determinants of health and looking to see how um, clinicians can be truly advocates for their patients. And I think... One of the things thing is, is that we have to recognize poverty because it's way more complex. It's way more common than we probably think. There's probably tons of patients in everybody's practice that they have no idea about that. And, and the problem and the issue is too is that is that it increases the risk of other conditions, right? So you know what? There's an amazing the OCFP, the Ontario College of Family Practice. Maybe we'll link it in the show note. Has an amazing, stupendous, awesome phasmatasmic. Poverty toolkit. Um, and it is, it is really, really awesome, right? I, I really, really encourage everybody to use this, right? Because it kind of puts poverty in the forefront to make you think about it, right? It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's one of these things that is uber common, but we don't think about. And then a lot of times too, we don't realize how it truly has an impact on me on other medical conditions, right? It truly does have an impact on other medical conditions, right? They're quoting your figure like in the province of Ontario, right? 20% of families live in poverty. That's a huge, huge number. That's one in what? I, I, I'm not, I don't have a math, Brian, like Brady Bouchard. What's 20%? One, really? One in five. Oh Come my on. God, Brady Bouchard. No wonder you're an engineer. I oh my love God, Brady Mike. Bouchard. The world's sexiest man can do fractions. That is fantastic. But that is a huge, 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 huge segment of the population. And the problem is, is that sometimes I question, as clinicians, are we really good at picking up that the potentially 20% of our patients in our practice are living below the poverty line. What are your thoughts on that? The sex yeah, of well, especially, I mean, where you practice and, and where I practice, it'd be more like, I would easily say three quarters of my practice is living in poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's just such a pervasive issue. It's, a, it's an issue for compliance with medications. It's an it's issue a with nutrition. It's an issue with uh, family violence and, fa and child rearing and... Um, just getting routine vaccinations done and attending, uh, like being able to come in for routine preventative visits, um, and education around their healthcare, why we do things, you know, why, why am I on this medication? Um, why do I need to get a pap smear every couple of years? Um, it's, it's pervasive and you're right. I don't think we teach it well enough. I think, I think it's a, a huge, um, fish that hits you in the face immediately when you come out into practice, especially in patients that aren't necessarily below the poverty line is um, because pharmaceuticals aren't 
uh, covered in Canada, especially for some of the expensive ones, even people who are, you know, middle class sometimes can't afford a medication that they need. And, and uh, a lot of time and effort is put in by well-meaning physicians to try and get coverage or try to get samples from drug companies and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's, man, you can talk about poverty forever. It, it intrudes on every part of your health. And, and I really love that the, it's, it seems as I've gone through medical school and gone through residency, it keeps on being a, a bigger topic and, and definitely the World Health Organization and the UN and, and uh, you just introduced to me the Ontario College of Family Physicians is, is all on top of it. Um, but I think as family physicians, we could definitely do better and we can train residents better in it as well. Exactly, exactly. I always find it's one of these things that, you know, when you're in residency in med school, you're, you're kind of learning the nuts and bolts of medicine and you get out to practice, you realize, oh man, there's so much other stuff that impacts people's outcomes. Like it's not yeah, just, okay. you know, you have pneumonia X and I give you antibiotic Y and that's the best evidence-based practice that I can do and I'm applying the, the evidence appropriately. And there's so many other factors that affect that patient's outcome, right? Whether or not they can afford antibiotic X, whether or not they can only afford, you know, a few days of it and not complete the whole, the whole entire course, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I find poverty is one of these things is that you gotta, it's one of these things that when you get out into practice, you really have to be cognizant that you're dealing with something, right? You're dealing with something that has a huge impact on health outcomes. Listen to some of these statistics. Listen to some of these statistics, Dr. Brady Bouchard, the engineer, the integrator, the world's sexiest man. Fire away. Um, Fire away. Listen to this here. This is straight from the guideline. Cardiovascular disease, 17% higher, right? Um, more ta uh, um, uh, um, diabetes, right? More than double, right? If you compare it versus highest income um, um, earners and stuff. Higher incidence of mental illness, right? Depression almost 58% um, uh, um, higher um, in below the poverty line than, above, than at the Canadian uh, um, average, right? Cancer, cancer of the lung, higher, right? Um, um, you have, if you do get cancer, you don't tend to live as long with your cancer if you're living in poverty, right? Like this is this, look at this infant mortality, 60% higher in lower income. So that like this from a public health perspective, that is huge. Like poverty makes badness even badder, right? And it's important for clinicians to be able to recognize it so they can start advocating or advocating for their, their, their patients for income security, those types of things, right? To getting patients above the, uh, to get helping patients with resources in order order to get them uh to um uh, um um get help get them above the poverty line right absolutely mike exactly so it's it's like when i read these statistics and i've read these for a while i was like wow as a as an intervention poverty reduction is probably on par with like vaccinations right and not drinking where other people are pooping does that make sense like yeah. that's what it, it that like that's the kind of magnitude of, of stuff when you hear those types of statistics whether it's from cardiovascular disease to diabetes to cancers to cancer survival rates that poverty can cause can 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 not only cause these things make them worse and diminish your survival that is huge we have to consider ourselves as doctors especially as family doctors as kind of poverty reduction you know, you know, we, we have to be like the, the antibody against poverty. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there was a, mo be a monoclonal antibody against poverty, right? That, isn't that right, Dr. Brady Bouchard? Beautiful, man. I love that analogy. Make sure you target that poverty receptor 
Canada. Does that make sense? And make sure you're doing things patient-centered and culturally appropriate to make sure that you're really targeting that positive, that, 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 that poverty receptor. And you're a poverty, you're a poverty monoclonal antibody. Yeah. And that's, and that's brings it right back to the, one of the very first things you said today, Mike, was, was being aware of your local context. And that's where being a local, a locum physician myself, I find it frustrating because yeah, I mean, we can't directly impact poverty. Poverty is, you know, lack of funds kind of by definition. Um, but what we can do is connect people with, you know, low income services that are available, social services that are available, charity groups that are available, um, and being aware of what's available for your patients in your community where they might not otherwise know um, is, is really important to do as a, as a primary care physician, as a family physician. Um, you know, knowing who's offering, uh, like especially out here, um, I find knowing who's offering cheaper or free or discounted dental um, work because that's just completely unaffordable for most people, even, even middle class people. Um, knowing where to get, you know, drug samples or, or, you know, which particular, even it'll impact even your choice of medications because, you know, of the hypertensive agents that you have available, if you have a six month supply of samples for someone, well, that can save them a whole ton of money um, and, you know, may work as well as the next agent, which is obviously what the drug companies are going for. But you can also help out a, a patient very, very directly there. Perfect, perfect. And what you want to make sure that you do, Brady Bouchard, is that you screen everybody. Screen everybody. You're dealing with something that has a 20% rate, folks. You screen everybody. Now, what sort of screening stuff do they recommend? Is that basically you could ask people a simple question, right? Is that do you have ever have difficulty making ends meet at the end of the month? Yep. Right? Asking that question. Get this. Sensitivity 98%, specificity 64%. That's not too bad. Does that make sense? That's not too, too bad, right? So do you have, so that can be a good sort of screening question that you can ask people, right? It's a very simple question you can ask and it's a, it, it, it can give you a lot of information. Right. Next step is adjust the risk. Right. You know that poverty can cause a whole lot of badness to be worse. Right. So so, so when you decide on what screening tests you're going to offer, make sure you consider poverty in that equation. Does that make sense? Make sure you consider poverty in that uh, um, 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 in equation, right? So when you're using your evidence-based screening guidelines for when you're going to do certain screening tests, i.e. Um, um, screening tests that you're going to do in an asymptomatic population, make sure you factor poverty into that because that might adjust the age. Does that make sense that you may start screening for certain things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one example I've kept in my mind is uh, for colon cancer, although it's not in our guidelines and I wouldn't recommend necessarily changing it, but... You know, if you're gonna, if you're on the edge of screening as an average or slightly above average risk person, if poverty's in the mix, um, you know, with maybe more than a few distant relatives with colon cancer, um, we know that, um, you know, poverty leads to a poor diet with uh, lower fiber uh, content, and we know that a poor diet leads to higher rates of colon cancer. So that's, you know, one simple indication of, you know, they're probably, although we don't know, probably at a higher baseline risk or prevalence of colon cancer in that population. 
Exactly, exactly. And that's when we talk about like streaming guidelines, like it's important to have those guidelines. But remember, like medicine is more than just, you know, content, it's also context, right? So you have to kind of interpret that guideline in context of the patient situation, right? And all we're saying right now is that if the patient is living in poverty, you need to adjust potentially consider need to adjusting some of these ages that you screen people for. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So what are some interventions that you can do? So it defines three sort of steps. First, screen everybody. Step two, it calls, talks about adjusting the risk. So kind of looking at if, if a person is living below the poverty line, it adjusts the risk of your normal screening stuff that you would do on a, on a, on, on, on the population level and interventions that we do, right? So big one, have you filled out your tax return? Point yeah. number one, right? Because that is one way of accessing a lot of a lot of services, right? If you don't fill out a tax return, then it's very difficult sometimes to access services, right? So have, because there's Good lots point. of, there's some government programs, those types of things, and they base it on, okay, when was your last year's filed tax return, right? So, you know, sometimes, you, you know, there, there's, there's services, for example, in our community that offer like free accounting services. Does that make sense? So that people can get help filing their income tax return. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. There might be child tax benefit credits, HST, blah, 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 blah. I'm not an accountant. I don't try to pretend to be one. Does that make sense? But if you don't file a tax return, sometimes it's difficult to be able to, um, um, it's difficult to be able to access these things, right? Um, it talks about for seniors, there's old age security for families. Are you accessing your child care benefits? Um, uh, um, if you have a disability, you know, are you accessing payments? Those types of, uh, 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 those types of thing. Are you on social assistance? So really, it, it really encompasses your ideals of can you surround that person with community supports? Support systems. This is when your social worker is key, right? Because they're going to know about these programs, right? And you know what? These programs are going to, some of them are going to differ provincially about what's offered. That's why you really want to sit down and as a clinician in a, in a community, know what resources are at play. Period. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah, who's going to know? So if you refer somebody to say, listen, oh, you know what? You know, to access this, you have to actually file an income tax return. They want to see two years version and you get access to this amount of funding per month, right? Someone who knows the ins and outs of that, uh, that, that, uh, that, um, that, uh, ins and outs of that, uh, that system or so. And because different systems are going to differ provincially and stuff for, for what different provincial governments are going to be able to offer, you really want to sit down with your friendly neighborhood social worker and start meeting with some community agencies and really kind of getting an understanding of that in your jurisdiction, what additional supports are there. Yeah. Yeah. It's all Perfect. about knowing your local, local context and, and local resources. Perfect. Beautiful. So um, poverty, big deal, Dr. Bouchard. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah. It's an absolutely huge deal. I just, yeah, it's, it's almost insurmountable you think of. And, and again, we can't directly impact things, but there's a lot that you can do from the primary care perspective to make changes. And, and as an aside, it's kind of topical that Ontario um, seems to be talking about uh, basic income at the moment. So who knows? Perfect. Maybe that'll uh, bring up the, the bottom end of, of income levels and, and it'll be much less of an issue. Exactly. Totally in support of that. And really, you know, I want to talk about this just a little bit. It's really what we're doing is, is patient advocacy, right? Like if you yeah. recognize that your patient is, is living in poverty, 
A lot of what you're doing is connecting them to resources. And it may involve you writing letters. It may involve you advocating for that patient to get additional resources. Because we know that any government system is not going to work perfectly. Does that make sense? There's going to be just some jurisdictional things. So it really, it really, you know, stresses. And I want to stress that, you know, you know, we talk about the can meds roles, you know what I mean? And stuff like clinician yeah, and all that stuff. Remember, one of those roles is advocate, right? And I think physicians have two responsibilities. We have to be individual patient advocates. You, you're, you're, oftentimes with a family doctor, you're the one writing the letters. You're the one doing all those things so we can advocate. But it's also being a systems advocate for as well, right? What do you do if you recognize issues with the system that you're working in? Does that make sense? It, that it, it's not being very patient-centric or centered or so, right? How do we advocate um, and, and to encourage physicians to continue advocating for, uh, for to make those necessary system changes, right? Um, do you remember um, about a year ago and stuff where some cuts were made to the interim federal health program? Remember that or so? Absolutely. That was a huge Remember deal. that? That was a big deal, right? Yeah. And, and, and that affected a whole lot of people, right? And, and it had the potential for affecting, and it did affect a whole lot of people adversely. But, but uh, you know, a lot of the big advocacy came from physicians and local medical associations and those types, the Canadian Medical Association, to change something, to change a previous government policy, right? So keep in mind that there's those opportunities as well, too, you know? So, we're, we're, you know, I think that advocacy is really, you know, it's something that we kind of, you know, you don't, you, you know, in med school, they teach you to be the medical expert and they teach you to be, you know what I mean? And stuff, the research person and those types of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that stuff is all good. But like, how much lectures do you get on advocacy in your medical program? Like, and, and what is effective advocacy versus ineffective advocacy, right? And, and, and advocacy for system change. Like, I always ask myself those questions, right? Like, what is, what's going on there? Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, Mike. And and you touched on something we missed when we were talking about refugees as well was um, that their their Medicare funding is different. Um, not that that's a topic that you really need to know for the exam, but um, it that was an issue uh, previously where it was all funded federally and then that funding was cut off um, and now it's being restored. But you know who knows for how long? And you know obviously it's a barrier uh, to accessing healthcare as much as family and physicians would like to you know, provide healthcare to, to all new immigrants. If, if you get paid zero for any of that work, it's, it's, it's a bit tough to, to uh, find enough physicians to do it or especially with the wave of new immigrants that we, that we've had. So um, mm -hmm. it's good. It's good that that funding's there. Exactly. It's good that that funding's there and keep in mind, you know, physicians did a lot of advocacy work. Does that make sense to help restore that, you know, to help restore that, um, to, to help restore that funding or so? You know what I mean? Except there was a big, big push to help, um, to help restore that, that, um, that funding. So I want to stress to everybody that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we're responsible for being, you, you know, we can, we can, we can be our patient advocates and that, that A in the CanMeds goals that talks about advocacy, like it's not just in, it's not like a lowercase A and the rest of them are all uppercase letters, you know what I mean? And stuff like that's yeah. just as important as being to me to be the clinical expert or the investigator or whatever, right? So, um, is to be that patient advocate to also help looking at, um, um, advocating for your individual patients, but also looking at, um, advocating, um, if there are system issues absolutely man. perfect nice work i think you nailed the it. world's sexiest man brady bouchard uh sure are you really gonna edit out every time i say sexy <laughs> sexy I, sexy again I, edit it, it out it, okay quickly everybody it, it, we have this it, very it, important it, exam update to do sexy yeah it's and sexy. it's very important sexy <laughs> Oh God, Mike! Hey, uh, if if you go back, I think I've left in like ten percent of them. So that means there's probably about 
two to three thousand of them in there. There you go. Leaving all of them in this episode, Dr. Bouchard. There's nothing to edit out. There Absolutely you go. nothing to edit out. I'll leave them all for you, Mike. The world's sexiest man, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Beautiful. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So what are we doing next, Dr. Bouchard? Uh, well, I pick this one. I think it's your choice next. Oh, Dr. Mm. Bouchard, I don't I don't have your vastness and calculus knowledge to be able to pick vastness. the next talk. Uh, what's a topic that you'd like? You'd like I like them all. You like them all. Um, how about periodic health assessment screening? Because we kind of touched on that today. Perfect. Sounds like a plan. Beautiful. Periodic health assessment screening. Love it. You talk about what all the new evidence is. Oh, yeah. No, and people, a few other people... new new things came out, right? Absolutely. There's, there's new, new things every day. New things every day and stuff. And what does the evidence show actually affect screening? Exactly. Perfect. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Later, Mike. Take care. Bye.